Genesis chapter uh, 40 and 41 this morning is where we find ourselves. While you're turning there, I want to mention that one month from now, one month from this weekend, is our second annual fall Bible conference. And our theme for this year is Pray Like This, which is taken from the Lord's Prayer and is going to be our featured text for the weekend. Thank you so much, bro. Put this over here. Always carry a handkerchief. No water rings on the piano. Conference begins on Friday the 19th with a a panel of men and women who will invigorate your prayer life, helping you to understand uh, prayer better, different ways in which to pray. And then it continues on Saturday and Sunday with our uh, big group sessions where we'll be looking specifically at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We'll be helping that by way of uh, Moyer Hubbard and Kip Docterman and Jason Oaks from our own church, and then Bobby Scott from Community of Faith Bible Church in Los Angeles will be with us also. Sunday morning, we'll have a couple of breakout sessions uh, like we did last year, and then it all wraps up after the final big group talk on Sunday night with a concert of prayer. More about that uh, in the future. So I just want to make sure that you have uh, the 19th or the 21st of this coming month blocked out for a great weekend uh, fall Bible conference on prayer. Pray like this. Well, uh, Genesis 40 and 41, uh, it wasn't until last night that I looked at how many verses are in these two chapters, but there are 80 in total. So I'm not going to read them all, but I will read chunks as I go along this morning. So I'm, I'm just going to jump right in here. Horatio Alger was a popular 19th century author, best known for his novels about virtuous males who uh, began as boys of humble means and then grew to men of stature and security, rags to riches, if you will. And uh, Alger's novels were far and away the best-selling novels of the 19th century. Uh, you, You can Google it. Don't Google it now. But you'll see that he was wildly popular. And uh, these stories shaped the ethos of what's referred to as America's Gilded Age uh, throughout the 19th century on into the 20th century and even right down to our present day. Americans love Horatio Alger style stories. So take, take, for example, the father of a friend of mine, who began his working life sweeping the meat room floor at his local supermarket and then rose through the ranks of that market to become vice president of the entire market chain. That's rags to riches. Or the fella after whom my most recent alma mater uh, uh, is named. Upon graduating from college, he began peddling insurance and invested heavily in the company for which he worked right before the big stock market crash in 1929. But he hung with it, worked there through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and in the 80s, he sold his stock and had enough left over to give $70 million toward the founding of Beeson Divinity School. And then upon his death, uh, bequeathed almost $40 million more to Beeson at an equal amount to Asbury Seminary. That is uh, uh, supersized riches, if you will. 
Now, the Joseph story, at which we've been looking over these weeks, uh, bears similar uh, marks to an Alger-style novel. For instance, uh, Joseph began as a slave and then a prisoner. So there's the rags side of the story. But he rose from prison to become a prime minister of Egypt, the, the political head of the whole nation. That's the riches side of the story. But there's one big difference between an Alger novel and the chapters before us this morning, and it's this. Alger's men rose to greatness by determination and hard work. Well, God's man, Joseph, primarily rose to greatness by another way. Joseph's ascension came not by way of his own will, but rather by the will of God. Because as Jackson was clear to point out last week, this account is part of a larger story that's all about God. Beginning back in Genesis chapter 3, where, where the Lord promises to save man and woman from their sin, promise made, and then continues on with that promise kept. Even when the faithful like Joseph are violently opposed and the faithless like his rebellious brothers and Joseph's pagan captors seem to prevail. A promise kept not in spite of circumstances, but even through circumstances. So that for Joseph to be exalted in chapter 41 meant that his endurance had to be perfected in chapter 40. The prerequisite for greatness on that banner was growth on that banner. There could not be a 41 unless there's a 40. And so here's the main point for today. Endurance precedes exaltation. Endurance precedes exaltation. We'll see it here this morning in the Joseph story. We see it as we continue on through the Bible. God builds Moses' endurance in Midian before his exaltation in Egypt. God builds Joseph's endurance in the wilderness before his exaltation in Palestine. God builds Hannah's endurance as an infertile wife before her exaltation as the blessed and grateful mother of Samuel. God builds David's endurance as a king in exile before his uh, exaltation as a king in Jerusalem. We see this in those who have lived in more recent years. Uh, I've mentioned in the past the big two-volume biography on the great missionary Hudson Taylor, volume one, subtitle, How God Built a Man. Volume two, subtitle, How God Built a Work. And that's the order in which it comes. We see it in our own lives as God perfects our faithful endurance through physical illness, through psychological challenges, through relational conflict, through personal loss, maybe a job, maybe a loved one, in preparation for exalted service, even if that service occurs amidst the hardship. So, This past week in our uh, New Testament reading as a church, I was 
uh, with you on into the book of Philippians, and I really appreciated what Paul had to say there in chapter 1, where he writes, what happened to me, that is going to prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, in other words, throughout the prison, uh, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been confident, uh, become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, endurance, chapter 40, precedes exaltation, chapter 41. That's the way forward today. But uh, before we dive into these couple of chapters, I want to mention just two things. One about chapters 40 and 41 in the overall Joseph story. And then second, something about an element that we'll find in each one of these chapters. Uh, First, the place of 40 and 41 in the whole Joseph story. It's simply this. Um, uh, This is the point in which the whole story swings. Everything changes today. This is a story that began in chapter 37 with Joseph's brothers refusing to believe that they would ever bow down to their little little brother. Uh, And then peaks, as we'll see in a few weeks in chapter 45, where his brothers, in fact, do bow down before him. It's a story that can't get any worse than it is on that banner, nor any more unbelievable than it does on this banner. So uh, theatrically speaking, there's a big set change coming this morning. Second thing I'd like us to particularly notice is an element in these two chapters, and that is this, the place of dreams. The place of dreams, which are extremely important because they're central uh, in both chapters. They're critical for the dreamers because they cause all kinds of consternation for them, and they're crucial for Joseph, since the way he handles those dreams changes everything about not only his life, but the history of the world in his day. So we need to understand what dreams meant to the ancient Egyptians, um, uh, since for us, uh, dreams are generally what, uh, you know, come true when you fancifully wish upon a star or uh, what your conscious mind is repressed and your subconscious mind is trying to, to work out while you sleep. The ancient Egyptians placed a great deal of importance on dreams because they believed in the dream state that they were actually touching a whole other world. They believed that dreams and visions had symbolic meanings and could even predict the future. And so they, they um, uh, employed professional oneirologists interpreters of dreams, uh, who consulted dream books to decipher the meanings of the dreams. For those in a a special class, there were secret interpretations that were available. And for Pharaoh, who was uh, believed to be divine, he was in a class all of his own, so his dreams had heightened importance and authority. Now, what dreams meant to ancient Egyptians is one thing, but What they meant to ancient Israel is a completely different thing. And uh, Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, uh, I think, well, for me, helps, helps me most in this way. Because it tells us that in New Testament days, which are 
our days, God speaks in one way, and that by way of his son, Jesus Christ, in whom he summed up the entire Old Testament. But Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us that in Old Testament days, God spoke in a variety of ways, many ways, it says. So, uh, you know, to Moses, God spoke through a burning bush, um, to Gideon, through a wet and a dry fleece, uh, to Elijah, through a still small voice, and to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Joseph, and to others, he spoke by way of dreams, which were to be understood not by dream books, but by way of the living God. And so that's important to remember in these two chapters so that we don't slip them into a file along with other famous fanciful dreams like uh, we find in A Christmas Carol or Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz. So as we move now into chapter 40, I I just want to quickly mention a couple of things from chapter 39 at which we looked last week that really heightened the drama for us today. And the first thing is this. In chapter 39, Joseph's circumstances, they got a lot worse. I mean, he'd been thrown in a pit and then sold into slavery by his brothers. But then in chapter 39, he's falsely accused of rape and he's mercilessly thrown into prison. So that's the first thing that heightens the drama of our chapters today. But um, despite all that, and this is the second thing, we also saw in chapter 39 that Joseph's faith didn't flag. It, It didn't weaken because God was with him. We read, the Lord was with Joseph and his master saw that the Lord was with him. Chapter 39, verses 2 and 3. And we saw in 39 that God made him a success. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. 39, 21, and 23. So as desperate as things had become in 39, God's presence with and blessing on Joseph in that chapter makes it appear as if something is going to happen here in chapter 40. It looks as if the sun is going to rise on Joseph's life. So, as we move now into the chapter of endurance, chapter 40, we see that Joseph is is joined in prison and appointed to attend to two members of Pharaoh's court. Uh, The cupbearer, who's responsible for what Pharaoh drinks, and the baker, who is responsible for what Pharaoh eats. Uh, A baker could also be translated the scribe of the table. He's the one who made out the menus. So two very important persons uh, close to the monarch and must have done something really bad for Pharaoh to throw them both into the brig. And so it's no wonder that we read in verse 2, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. And then five times in verses 3 through 5 and then in verse 7, we're told that they were put in custody and confined, point made, and in verse 4, left there for some time. So Joseph, the cupbearer, the baker, they weren't just acquaintances. They knew each other. They ate meals together. They swapped stories. They knew each other well, so well that one morning 
Joseph recognized that they were troubled. So much so that in verse number seven, you'll see there he asked, why are your faces downcast today? They began, we have had dreams. Which would lead one to think that the cupbearer and the baker had bad dreams. But as we read on, it, it wasn't the dreams that troubled them. Rather, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Remember, dreams are important to ancient Egyptians. A dream without an interpretation is like a diagnosis without a prognosis. So as members of Pharaoh's court, these are two fellas that had regularly rubbed shoulders with the uh, uh, castle wizards with their little dream books uh, going from place to place. They had access to these persons, but here in prison, not to be found. And so in verse 8, when Joseph replies, do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. The men were provoked. So much so that verse 9 begins, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. Now, just want to do a quick sidebar here. And um, uh, before looking at what the cupbearer said to Joseph, uh, because I, th I think it's worth noticing a few things. I, you know, I'm, I'm reading this story. This is one I've read over the course of my life many times. You think you know it all, and you find out you really don't know anything about this story. Here's some things that I, I picked up over the last few weeks. Number one, first, in a place where most persons, prison that is, uh, where persons are looking out for themselves only, Joseph's different. He... He notices the downcast faces of the men. He feels for their troubled hearts. He leans in to the situation and inquires about their well-being. So Joseph's grim setting had not crushed his concern for others. In fact, as one scholar put it, it has sharpened his redemptive edge. I like that. Second thing, at a point in life, where Joseph could have easily and understandably given up on God's word. I mean, he's been in Egypt now for over a decade. Joseph expresses complete confidence in it, which should steal your flagging faith in your troubled world, as it does mine. Thirdly, since Joseph believed that God had addressed these men in their dreams, he must have also believed that the Lord had truly spoken to him all those years ago. And that someday, in some way, his brothers would, in fact, bow down to him. Again, how that would happen was beyond Joseph's imaginings. But, but uh, since God's word foretold it, Joseph believed it. He became a living example of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So let's look at the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, and then God's interpretation of those dreams. We'll begin there in chapter 40, verse 9. Uh, cupbearer's dream. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, uh, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. 
a Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. So there's the dream. Now the interpretation. Verse 12, then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. Uh, the three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now down to verse 16, and we'll read about the baker's dream. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, uh, hey, I, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked foods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. Now God's interpretation of the baker's dream. Verse 18, Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Eh. A couple of observations about these dreams. Uh, number one, they're visual dreams. They're not auditory dreams. Auditory dreams are self-interpreting, right? Just listen to what's being said and let the dreamer understand. But a visual dream was not self-interpreting, and therefore it caused great stress on the cupbearer and the baker, even greater than being in prison at that moment. Second thing, concerning the interpretations, there's really not a whole lot to be said, because as one scholar notes, the text doesn't parse out the meaning of the dreams, because the point isn't to focus on the dreamers, but the interpreter of the dreams, God, through Joseph. So, Thus far, dreams and their interpretations. But in the midst of all of that, there's this, uh, uh, what I find to be surprising and rather heart-wrenching appeal that's made by Joseph to the cupbearer. And it's all the more curious because of Joseph's steely faith. So take a look at verse 14 where Joseph says to the cupbearer, Only remember me when it's well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that that they should put me into this pit. Joseph's plea reveals his confidence in God's word. Remember, according to verse 4, the cupbearer and the baker had been there for some time. There was no immediate signs of them being released. But Joseph's faith in God's word uh, 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 compelled him to appeal to the cupbearer as if his freedom was a fait accompli, uh, uh, done, as it were. And yet, despite Joseph's certainty about the cupbearer's future, He appeals to him on behalf of his own. Because you see, while Joseph had great faith, like you and I, he could be fraught with great fatigue. He was tired. He'd been there for a long time. And so he asked to be remembered by the cupbearer two times. Been there for 11 years. Felt as if if he'd been forgotten. 
He pleaded his innocence. The cupbearer and the, ba- uh, and the baker were there for wrongs that they had in fact done. He was innocent. He expressed his true feelings about their dwelling. It wasn't just a house or a dungeon as it's put in some translations. It was a pit as we read there. The same term that's used for the hole in which his brothers had thrown him back in chapter 37. And Joseph says all this in emphatic terms because he knows that the cupbearer is going to be back in Pharaoh's presence and in his favor in no time at all. So what happened? Well, Egyptian literature reveals that Pharaoh granted amnesty on his birthday and the anniversary of his ascension. And so beginning in verse 20, we read, uh, it's no surprise to read that on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker. In other words, he summoned them to himself uh, among his servants, and he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but Pharaoh hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Bummer for the baker. Good news for Joseph. I mean, he must have been encouraged. This is objective proof that he had correctly understood and communicated God's word to these two men. Ergo, freedom should not be far off. But the words at the end of chapter 40 are as emphatic as Joseph's plea. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Wow, what a disappointment. What a huge disappointment. For sharing his divine destiny in 37, his brothers sold him into slavery. For for holding to a high moral standard, he's, he's... falsely accused and cast into prison in chapter 39. For helping a prisoner and asking to be remembered in chapter 40, he is forgotten. Ah. But I think Alan Ross rightly observes at this point, Joseph's faith could not be destroyed by these circumstances because this is exactly what God was looking for in a leader. God was using this profound setback to further perfect Joseph's endurance. See, up to this point, Joseph's life had been filled with red lights. No, 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 no. But in chapter 41, it would be filled with green ones. Coast is clear. But Joseph needed to be prepared. He needed to have the grit to say no. This one scholar wrote, in two years, Joseph would be catapulted to life at the top, but it would be no picnic. Every morning of his existence, he would rise to the pagan wake-up hymns to the Egyptians' idols. Life would be lived amidst a swirl of sensuality. Mrs. Potiphar's were everywhere. Open cookie jars adorned every mansion of the Nile. The chief baker's intrigues were a mere sampling of the deadly ambitions of the court. Lying and backbiting would fill the air of Joseph's aristocratic existence. 
And he would be the one righteous man in Egypt. Kip told us three weeks ago that um, we do things either ahead of time or on time or we're late. In God's economy, Kip told us, uh, he's never late. And he's always on time. Therefore, when our circumstances seem to betray our convictions, we need to remember that God is working ahead of time for his on-time delivery. It's very helpful, especially in this case. So, curtain uh, goes down on chapter 40, the, the chapter of endurance, and it comes up on chapter 41, the chapter of exaltation. And as it does, we learn that uh, it's been two years since Joseph proclaimed God's word to the prisoners from Pharaoh's court. It's been two years since the cupbearer infamously forgot to remember Joseph. And it's at this time Pharaoh has a pair of dreams. Pharaoh has a pair of dreams. And they're, they're really nightmares because their content, it's, it's fantastical, it's violent, it's cannibalistic. In a word, uh, it's outrageous. And the effect of these dreams on Pharaoh is great since we read there in verse 8, 41.8, that, that he was troubled or perturbed in his spirit. It's the same word used by Asaph in Psalm 77.5 where he says, I'm so troubled I, I can't speak. So Pharaoh's troubled spirit is more than likely due to the fact that his dream involved the Nile River, uh, which was the heart of Egypt's bounty and by its annual flooding kept the, the crops in that Nile River Valley well watered and the fields refreshed with new soil. Even if it didn't rain, that flooding was like clockwork. Now since Pharaoh's dreams were silent ones, he, he needed, he needed the, the wizards and their dream books to tell him what was going to happen. So at the end of 8, verse 8, we read, Pharaoh told him his dreams, uh, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And it's at this point, bing, the lights go on for the cupbearer. Uh, let's begin reading in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, ah, hey, excuse me, I remember my offenses today. When, when, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief, ba uh, chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. Uh, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So verse 14 begins, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. Here we go. <laughs> I mean, this is the moment. It's really the moment for which Joseph was born. Uh, uh, his brothers ridiculed him for his exposition of God's word. The cupbearer had forgotten his exposition of God's word. But Pharaoh, as we see here, and soon Egypt, as we'll notice, needed a clear word from God 
now more than ever. But how would Joseph do? How would he do under the hot lights? How would he do feeling compelled to give politically correct answers to Pharaoh? I mean, it's one thing to anticipate an audience with Pharaoh. It's another thing to actually have an audience with Pharaoh. Uh, Chuck Colson worked for Richard Nixon in the West Wing of the White House during Nixon's presidency. Uh, Colson wrote this. Invariably, the lions of the waiting room become the lambs of the Oval Office. No one ever showed outward hostility. They nodded when the president spoke. And in those rare instances when they disagreed, they did so apologetically, assuring the president that they personally respected his opinion. Ironically, none were, more comp- uh, none were more compliant than the religious leaders. Of all people, they should have been the most aware of the sinful nature of man and the least overwhelmed by pomp and protocol. But theological knowledge sometimes wilts in the face of worldly power. And speaking of protocol, Semite men were bearded and Egyptian men were not. So as we continue on in verse 14, we read, they quickly brought Joseph up out of the pit, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in looking like an Egyptian before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. Now I want you to notice what Pharaoh says next and how Joseph immediately responds to to Pharaoh's words. Pharaoh says, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. It's not in me. Those five English words, one word in Hebrew. So in a single breath, Joseph dismisses God in favor of God, demonstrably and clearly. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams, and and there's added description here in this account as opposed to the one at the beginning of the chapter, verses one through seven, which reveals this heightened anxiety in Pharaoh, which is ironic because he is a supposed God. Take a look at verse 17. Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, standing on the banks of the Nile, seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Uh, sidebar, used to live in Indiana. That's where cows do their daytime. A lot of in the water, staying away from the flies. They come up and out to feed uh, in the grass and then back into the water. So this is, this is uh, not unusual. Uh, seven other cows come up after them, poor, very ugly, thin, such as I'd, I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they'd eaten them up, no one would have known that they'd eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And I woke up, and I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So in verses 25 and 26, Joseph explains to Pharaoh that these two dreams are actually one dream, a single message from God. And that, in fact, God, there in verse 25, is the author 
of the dream. And that God is telling Pharaoh what he will most certainly do in 26 and 28 and 32. And that he will most certainly do it soon, verse 32. So there's this, this prophetic directness and tone to Joseph's approach. Well, let's see how these dreams are um, parsed out here. Seven good cows, seven good ears represent seven years of what really were super abundance. You got seven ugly cows, seven empty ears. These are years of famine. In fact, there's all kinds of ink uh, given to this as opposed to the, the good years. You see there in verse 30, all the plenty will be forgotten, the land will be consumed, and the famine will be severe. So Joseph is certain of his forecast. I mean, he is so certain that uh, he even knows what kind of man should preside over this disaster and what the plans that that man ought to enact look like. We see that in verse 33, 34, through 36. And at this point, one of two things could happen. Pharaoh could say, okay, all right, thank you. I appreciate that. I'll put that in the dream folder and uh, back to the rags of prison. Or he could have promoted Joseph to the riches of his good grace. Well, I don't think that Joseph himself could have imagined what was about to happen because Pharaoh put Joseph over his whole house, over his people. We see that in verse 40. He made him second in command. Uh, Pharaoh is the royal head of Egypt. Uh, Joseph becomes the political head of Egypt. He sealed the decision by placing his own signet ring onto Joseph's finger there in verse 42. He dressed him in fine linen that made up for the coat that had been ripped off him by his brothers in 37 and the shirt that had been ripped off him by Potiphar's wife in 39. He presented him with a gold chain or a collar that marked royal favor. As I read about that collar, it Kind of, it was more glorious than this, but kind of looked like that one that Yasmani Grandal wears, you know, when he comes to bat for the Dodgers, that big old gold chain that he wears on the outside of his uniform. It looked like that. And then Pharaoh sent him on a ride. You know, the last time Joseph was on a ride, it was to Egypt as a slave. But now he's taking a ride through Egypt as an exalted ruler. Pharaoh gave him a new name, and he gave him a wife with whom he had two sons, about whom we read in verses 51 and 52, uh, Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my hardship and all of my father's house, and Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so we get to verse 47, and uh, Joseph rolls up his sleeves, and he goes to work, got the seven years of plenty, Uh, The earth produced abundantly, we see that there in 47, so that in 49, Joseph stored up grain in abundance. And he did all of this according to plan, Uh, in decentralized locations for convenience, in population centers for security. And this grain, it was like sand. You, you, You couldn't count it all. And so he stopped counting it. The storehouses were bulging. Plenty is the adjective that described Egypt during those first seven years. 
plenty of work, plenty to eat, plenty of everything. And so as the seventh year of plenty comes to a close, and I imagine the Egyptians are reflecting on the previous 12 months, any year but a prosperous year is is becoming a, a distant memory. As some looked forward, they may have thought, this, this could never end. But no matter what their year in reflections may have been, verses 53 and 54 tell us that the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. So verse 54 tells us that first that the satellite nations were affected, uh, affected by the famine, but after a pitiful harvest the following season, even Egypt became locked in uh, famine's iron grip, a grip so tight that extra-biblical sources tell us that some people reverted to cannibalism to survive. So at no time, Egypt is clinging to all it had left, and all they had left were their own lives. So those in Egypt and beyond came to the capital where they cried out in utter despair to Pharaoh, a supposed God who directed them to a mere mortal, a mere mortal. We see there in verse 55, he says, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. And so all of a sudden, this this foreigner, this former prisoner, this one who may have been viewed askance for hoarding food when there was such a great abundance of it, had not just become the most important man in Egypt. I mean, he was that. But he had become the most important man in the world because, because the world needed bread. And Joseph had it. In fact, for his shrewd uh, management uh, and, and benevolence uh, management of that food source, uh, people exclaim without qualification uh, down in chapter 47, verse 25, Joseph, you have saved our lives. The Egyptians knew what they could live with because they'd been enjoying it um, uh, many times over in the previous years. But the one they couldn't live without was just becoming known to them. Now, in this story, it's very easy to identify with Joseph because we all have challenges. Uh, We all understand uh, the need to have our endurance and faith perfected by those challenges. And we all long for a day of exaltation. I mean, no doubt God builds lives in that way. We have an example of that here this morning. It's the main point of the sermon. But the ones with whom I think we should especially identify out of this story are those who had no bread and came to Joseph for it. Those who faced death and in Joseph found life. Here's the irony of of this whole thing. The irony is this. Those who needed Joseph the most didn't meet him until it was almost too late. Making the years of the famine in a very real way better 
than the years of plenty since they were forced to meet for the first time or in a new way, this one who cared for them most of all, this one who uh, almost a decade before was preparing for their needy tomorrow while they reveled in their prosperous today. And the further irony is, it's not as if Joseph had to use his power in, in this fashion. I mean, he could have used it to exact revenge on his brothers, on Potiphar's wife, on the cupbearer. And yet, these are the very ones whom he is keeping alive. What goodness, what graciousness, what godliness. In fact, in this story, Joseph is less like us and more like Jesus. Really in a number of ways, I had to leave uh, most of them on the cutting room floor, but I will mention this one. Both Joseph and Jesus offered bread. Joseph to those who faced physical death, namely everybody in his time, and Jesus to those who face spiritual death, namely everybody in all time. What that means is, if this is a year of famine for you, it could be the best year of your life. It could be your best year. If you meet for the first time, or in a fresh way, the one who cares more for you than you ever cared for yourself. The one whose importance you've underestimated because you've put it on so many other things, or so many other ones. The one whom you have wronged time and again by willful opposition or passive indifference. But as hungry as you may be, you won't meet him until, like the Egyptians, you cry out in desperation for bread. Not bread that will strengthen your hand, but bread that will nourish and heal your heart. Because when you receive that bread, you realize that all you wanted from life is not what you really needed. Because all you really need is Him. And in Him, there is true and lasting exaltation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would continue to perfect our redemptive edge in the midst of whatever trial we happen to be going through right now so that our endurance would be built up. So that on the day when we're exalted, maybe even in our trial, we will be prepared to honor you in word and in deed. But Lord, we all join together um, out of our different stations and circumstances in life to say we do look forward to the final day uh, when we are exalted together and are in your presence. Uh, we live for that day, we long for that day, and we pray that you would give us the faith to endure until that day. Oh Lord, hear our prayer. Have mercy upon us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.